Good morning, everyone. This morning is my honor and privilege to share from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm doing just three verses, 5, 6, and 7, and next week we'll start with 8 and do some more. We want to understand what Paul is saying about service, servants, gifts, and how God uses different people in the body of Christ. And in the same way, he's also warning that we don't become enamored with personalities rather than the gift that God gave, and he gets the glory. So I'll read the text on the next slide, and we'll pray, and then we'll have some other slides that will lay out the concepts here. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Thank you that you do give gifts. And Lord, thank you that we can come to you in faith and trust you, be part of the body of Christ. We ask for wisdom and understanding from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the overview is Paul and Apollos are fellow workers. The context we'll look at on the next slide. If you weren't here the last time I preached, you probably have read this. They had factions and slogans. And it goes all the way back to chapter 1. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. Whatever it may have been. But that's not the point. It's not that they don't have different ministries. It's not that God didn't use Paul and, and Peter and certainly Apollos in various ways. The point is that we tend to want to have factions and slogans and identify with personalities rather than realize that it's God's grace that any of us are called, any of us know him, any of us are gifted, and God is the one who should be given the glory. So let's break that out, and we'll go first to 1 Corinthians 3, 5a. What is Apollos? What is Paul? It's interesting, before I go any further, why did he use neuter, which is, by the way, in the Greek, it's not, it's, it's how the language works. What would be de-emphasizing the person? I have that on my slide here. Using what, reversing the order from the slogans of verse 4, de-emphasizes status. And I'll read 1 Corinthians 3, 4 for you. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? We preached on that. Merely human being, meaning as if you were never 
born of God, as if you were never redeemed, as if you never received the spirit. If there's anything that's just like the world, as people pick out order and status and who's more important and who isn't, that is not what the church is about. So in that context, here we see that this status idea is not right, and we see the de-emphasis of status and the emphasis of the fact that our faith is in Christ, not in the preacher. Now, notice it says, servants through whom you believe. The word for servants in the Greek is the word from which we get our word deacons, but it doesn't mean they're deacons. It means they are those who serve in various ways. There's a technical use here, a common use of diakonoi. So if we think about that, why would you say I follow Paul and I follow Apollos? Well, both of them were associated with ministry in Corinth. Paul preached there. Apollos was there. And God used them. And the important thing, if you want to look at this, notice I have it in green on the slide, through whom you believed. The idea is this. Who did they believe in? Christ and the gospel. So if someone brings the gospel to you, and it's the true gospel, and it's about Jesus Christ and him crucified, redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life, praise God. But that doesn't mean you just joined a denomination or some group. Your faith has to be in Christ alone because he is God incarnate and the one who died for sins. So the object of their faith was Christ, not the personalities of preachers. And this is very important. Frankly, if you want to look at church history, it's the history of the personalities of people and groups and so on, triumphing over the real issue, which is forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the person and work of Christ. And that's what we want to deal with. I am citing scholars in these sermons, and here's why. I want to emphasize that the writer of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, his meaning is God's meaning. And Eric talked about that in Sunday school. The author determines the meaning, not the reader. And one of the things that's necessary is for us to realize that scholarship that helps us understand that meaning is important. One of the things that has caused havoc in the last so many centuries, and particularly in the 20th and 21st century in evangelicalism, is an anti-scholastic bias. The less they know, some people think the better. Or as Eric was talking about in Sunday school, nobody can know anything, so let's see where this goes. So I'm going to cite scholars, Camp and Rosner, in their uh, commentary. They say this, the Corinthians would presumably have answered the two questions in a more flattering way. I follow Apollos, 
the powerful orator, where I follow Paul, the man of God. Instead of reflected honor and glory, they say, Paul offers the Corinthian, Corinthian hangers on, listen to this, disrepute by association. So you're following us? The world hates Christ and the gospel. Did you know that? The world has already rejected this message. You don't, if you gain status in the world's eyes by associating with a certain preacher, there's something wrong because the world has always hated the gospel. So I like that phrase. That's why I cited them. Disrepute by association. Paulus and Paul, they say, are mere servants. And servants in the ancient world were not considered upper class. Now let's go to 3.5b, the next part of that verse. As the, excuse me, as the Lord assigned to each, who is the Lord who assigns the servants? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. They had of the church, and he sent forth apostles, prophets. We saw in Ephesians, evangelists, pastors, teachers. There are distinctions, and we've consistently taught that the foundation is laid once for all. Christ and his apostles are the foundation. People are added as they believe the gospel. There are no authoritative apostles that have the power to add or detract anything from what's already been taught. However, the Lord Jesus Christ has gifted everyone who turns to him as a part of the body of Christ. Now, the word assigned here is given or gave in the Greek, and therefore to each the Lord assigned place in his body that by the way keep this straight if you don't know Jesus Christ you're not a Christian just because you live in a certain country no one is a Christian based on heritage or place of origin or anything else in Adam all die in Christ you're all made alive you're not in Christ because you were born in a certain country that had a state church or didn't have one. We're only Christians in Christ because we trust in him. So Paul uses various metaphors. I was reading about that recently, preparing to to write an article that we probably will yet publish. One of the things that happens when Christendom becomes something other than biblical Christianity is trying to obscure what God said. So I'm reading some books uh, a while back that say, well, look at all the metaphors. And I have some here. Field, building, temple, body, family of God, people of God. And the authors who obscure the fact that God has defined these things say, all of these metaphors are there. The end result is we really can't. Anything goes. It's amorphous. Fuzzy boundaries, fuzzy math, have you heard of that? And so chaos theory does not define the church. The fact is 
The metaphors have meaning, and the meaning is determined by the author, in this case, the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Scripture. Jesus Christ himself used metaphors. So don't let someone to fool you. All these metaphors means we can believe whatever we want. That's not true. They have specific meaning. As we go through 1 Corinthians, we'll see what the meaning is in each case. So let me make a statement I have in my notes here. The emphasis in 1 Corinthians is on the value and importance of every member of the body of Christ. It is God's gift that any one of us was saved by his grace. It's God's gift. We didn't become Christians if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior based on which family we were born into, what religion our parents had, or anything else. We're only Christians when we're born of God. That's a supernatural rebirth that happens to everyone and for everyone who is taken by him from darkness to light and into the kingdom of God. That's a gift of God. Now, look at this highlighted phrase. We're going to talk about that a number of different places, but this will keep coming up. So I brought along some material I got as I did some searches of the Greek word. Notice it says, to each. Now, this would have to do not only with Paul and Apollos or Peter or any member of the body of Christ or various gifts. The word, and I transliterated here, akastos, is used a number of times in the context of promises, gifts, future judgment, and so on. I want to make this in this emphasis. The world, especially now, wants to erase the importance of the individual. In some places, even more than others. We've seen millions of people destroyed by communism or other versions of secular religion or even some very specific religions saying the individual doesn't matter. Your identity is a part of the group. and If we don't like the group, you don't matter. But that's not what the Bible says. This word hekastos is used to indicate each one, each one individually. So I want to point out a few things about that by citing some other cases. This will be too quick for you to write down, but don't worry, we'll be doing this throughout 1 Corinthians. One of the first uses of this in 1 Corinthians was in 1 Corinthians 1.12. Each one of you here, individuals are saying, no, I just follow Paul. I don't like Apollos or so on. Paul's rebuking that idea. The passage right here, 1 Corinthians 3.5, 1 Corinthians 3.8. It says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. I'll cover that next week. 3.10, each one takes care how they build upon it. And many other places, 1 Corinthians 4.5, we'll talk about that. Here's the point. 
God hears the prayers of each of his children as we go to the throne of grace. There are degrees of reward and punishment for those who are in the body of Christ and those who reject it. Each one is significant. There's not some way to gain a favor with God by being a part of a group. People say, get a part of the group. God's at work. God's in everything, and we're evolving. We're going to evolve into something better, but we got to just get into the group. Well, how do you get into the group? Well, just kind of look around and see what God's doing. Well, how do you know what God's doing by looking around? Your prejudice tells you what God's doing. Some religions think what God's doing is killing the infidels. But that's not what Paul's point is. There are definitions, there are boundaries, and there are distinctions. And each one of you, as you trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he cares about you. If you go to the throne of grace, he hears you. And as we serve one another, God in his infinite power and love and omniscience knows each person. And that is something that the world would like to take away from you and say that if you get a part of the right group, you're okay. The individual doesn't matter. I reject that. And by the way, that's why Eastern religion is uh, wrecking havoc with so many people. People meditate trying to get in touch with the universe. The universe is full of a lot of deception, including fallen spirit beings. But the person loses any particular identity, not so as we come to God. So let's go to... The next verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. In the church, meaning those who are born of God, brought into the family of God, the metaphors are many, but the definition is still clear. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Another way that this is confused is the assumption that the church can be identified by a building. Okay? And so as you drive around here in in the city, or wherever you may live, if you're hearing this, we got to be careful about equivocation. Well, they bombed the church. Well, it's true that there are buildings, and many buildings... Christians actually worship in, but the church are the people who are joined to the Lord and know the Lord and are growing in his grace, and every building can be knocked down, God forbid, but if it does happen, the church still exists. Amen. And so throughout the centuries, people who trust Christ will go where they have to go in order to worship. Buildings aren't forbidden, but there's no architectural design revealed in the Bible about what building should be built, and then we call that the church, and whoever goes there must be a Christian. 
That idea came long after the apostles and prophets there in the Bible. Back, uh, I think Augustine, no, excuse me, Constantine's wife, didn't she go find places and build buildings? Check it out. Now, let's break this down a little bit. The key point is that the church cannot judge the work. That's God's prerogative. God gives the growth. Now, let's learn something from that. We don't know enough. The Lord who assigns tasks knows the heart. He knows the motives. He knows the building he's building, and he knows the end, where it's going, and how he's perfecting each member. And therefore, if God gives the growth, what we need to know is what will cause growth. And I believe growth comes by teaching everyone the pure word of God and feeding the Lord's sheep. So the growth doesn't come by having such a magnificent preacher and great everything you could ever want. Don't worry. Fill up the building and then feed them worldly wisdom. Those who are born of God will never grow on the wisdom of man. And even the same with gifts. I'll give you a preview of where this is going to go. We don't need Carl Jung or anybody else or personality theories or whatever to tell people what their gift is. We are part of the body, and as we share and love one another, if we know Christ, I've always said, show up and serve. And if someone has a gift, it'll become evident. We'll see that later when we get into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. God uses every member. And worldly ideas about how you find your gift are designed to not make a distinction between those who are born of God and those who are religious consumers. Religious consumers that don't know God may be gifted, but they're not part of the body of Christ. So let's go forward here. I'll just make one more point here um, that I have in my notes. Even more important is God literally grew or gave the growth, which is also an active verb, but it's in a continuing sense. It's an imperfect. In other words, uh, the watered, the gave, the planted, or the, the watered, the planted, and so forth are point in time in the Greek. The imperfect means God will always give increase. So church history is full of everything from good to horrible. 100 years war, 30 years war, Christianize this country. Do you know Christian is a noun, not a verb? And if you Christianize something, what do you end up with? Something that looks Christian, but it isn't. If you're converted by God's grace and power, you're born of God, you're Christian. And the body are those who are being built on the foundation, and how it all works out happens in eternity. Well, let's talk about that some other time, but Christianize is not a good idea. 
That's how the church becomes pagan. We're not Christianized, we're converted. Let's go also to verse four. I have the term strong adversity. If there's a, in the Greek, it can tell you it's a contrast. I planted, Paul said, Paul's watered, but strong contrast, God gave the growth. Let's go to verse seven, 1 Corinthians 3, seven. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Now let's unpack that because it's going to be essential for us to understand this as we go through 1 Corinthians. It doesn't mean that Paul's not an apostle. He is. And that's a unique thing that will come up in 1 Corinthians 15. But what is under debate here is whether it was appropriate to have schisms based on personalities. If you saw Paul, had you lived back then, first at the martyrdom of Stephen, and then what Luke tells us about Paul, and you saw him going blaspheming, wanting Christians destroyed, would anybody see him and think, you know, I think he'd probably be a good apostle. No one would think that. This is the enemy. Jesus said when he appeared to him, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, he was attacking the disciples of the Lord. We look around and we see people with a lot of talent. But God takes the things that are not and makes them his in order to refute the things that are. So in this analogy, they're shown to be servants working on the same farm. Farm work isn't always pretty, and it certainly doesn't give you a lot of status in some cultures, many of them. But this analogy is saying it's not about who they are, they're serving the Lord, It's about who he is and what he's doing to bring growth. The next analogy will be a building analogy. I'll talk about that next week. Paul and Apollos are servants working on the farm. Notice, preachers are not important simply because people like them. Now, with modern marketing technology that didn't exist in their day, and the ability to project all around the world very quickly, sometimes we are attracted only to the personality, the person who has gravitas or whatever it might be. It is not a sin for someone to be articulate. It wasn't a sin for Apollos to be articulate. But the gospel is what's matter, what matters. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have been born of, of God through the gospel, do you care what the preacher was like who told you the truth? I don't. Remember uh, in, in the town where we were born of God when I was an enemy, there was a very uh, eccentric preacher that came into town And 
Diane's family and others, nobody would want to listen to him, but some people did, and that's what led ultimately to me hearing the gospel. Others are more convincing. That's not the point. People are attracted to folks that will send them into a cult. So what is important is the progress of the gospel. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1.12, I see something that will be helpful in the dovetail with what Eric is teaching also in Sunday school. Let me cite Philippians 1.12. This, I believe, is a prison epistle. Paul said this, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Rather unusual word for progress, but it's translated this way. It's used three times in the New Testament, but it's still important. And here's what is really important. The progress of the gospel means the true gospel goes where it had not been before or reaches people who had not heard it before and some believe. Paul was a prisoner. So you look at his circumstances and you might think, what kind of a ambassador is somebody in chains? Imprisoned. The point is the one God chose. Let me make a point that I've said else, elsewhere. I was in seminary and I talked about this. Eric mentioned some of the things we went through. We need the progress of the gospel, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, not a progressive gospel. What's the difference? The progress of the gospel is that the truth about Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who came into our world, God who created the world out of nothing, the second person of the Trinity, virgin born, came into our world, lived a sinless life, shed his blood for sins, proved his claims through the resurrection on the third day. If you weren't here last week at your Eric sermon, appeared to many witnesses, bodily ascended to heaven, he's coming again, and there'll be reward and judgment. That's the simple version of it. What's the progress of the gospel? Well, the Praetorian Guard heard it. Rome heard it. Various places heard it. It goes around the world. The progressive gospel changes the gospel so that it is no longer what it was, but more people are Christianized. To become a Christian, you're converted. You're not given a veneer that makes you look like a Christian, whatever that is. What's a Christian look like? A lot of different things. When you're converted, you're different. Yes, we have love, joy, peace, and hope, and things are changed. But there's people that look happy, seem successful, 
or good people that you would like to work with or talented, that if you ask them, they'll say that you are crazy to believe in Christianity. Most of us have met people like that. But here, the point is, progress means the gospel isn't changed, but God changes people from the inside out by forgiveness of sins and redemption, atonement, and those who are built into the family of God, whichever biblical metaphor we want to look at, we're built on the rock, we're part of it, we have eternal life. And there's no reason or warrant, in fact, it's evil to change the gospel so that it's something it wasn't, so we can have a bigger Christianized whatever. Do you want the gift of eternal life or do you want to be Christianized? Christianized won't do you any good. I want to cite uh, one more section here of of a scholar, not because we need scholars. My favorite class at seminary, the teacher said, we're going to read. And we'll read through whatever we were in Matthew. And in this class, you can use commentaries, he said, but be very careful. They may lead you astray and you'll get a worse grade. A seminary teacher who teaches us to read the Bible? And so we did. And it was amazing. And the best reading is what determines, I mean, in our mind, we know what the author meant. So here, Camp and Rosner say this, the point of Paul's analogy is that the progress of the gospel is the work of God. When it comes to church growth, they say, whereas ministers, denominations, and institutions are contingent, that means dependent on something else, continuing, only God has absolute significance. To accord Christian leaders too high a stature is to ignore their impotence without the power of the life-giving spirit, unquote. Wow, that was really the case in the very early days when we met the Lord in the little town of Sheldon, Iowa. The evangelist there was the most eccentric character we ever saw, right? I mean, he was just, I don't know, different. In fact, I think some of the people said the guy was just so erratic, they had to have somebody else drive around for him. But through that, ultimately, some of us came to the Lord. So let's go to some applications. True gospel preachers are servants who preach Christ, not themselves. Secondly, we must resist claims that individuals are not important. It really does break your heart to see on the news now that things happen all over the world in real time. That's it's scary, but it really shows us what the world is like. Some of us have mentioned that there were people confined in China and they were screaming because they couldn't go anywhere. So I was the only one that saw that on the news. Yes, yeah, just in that sort of a world, Individuals mean nothing. 
far as the dictators are concerned, everybody dies, oh well. That's not the way the body of Christ is. Everyone who's part of the family of God has significance because of God. And human life created by God in his image is significant. Only humans are created in the image of God. And according to Genesis, they have unique requirements and they're unique. And what we have in the world today is pantheism or panentheism. God is in everything. And the distinction between human beings and the rest of the creation is being erased. And we need to resist that because it will not ever turn out well because millions have died, including people who have undertaken to have people born that, well, we don't like this one. Let's get rid of it. It's really horrible. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 as an application. There's just, I limited this because I know we have a busy day and there's a lot more to cover conceptually. So next week, pick this up. This is looking forward to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. I preached in 2 Corinthians, I think, in the 90s. But notice this passage stands out to you. I have it in red on the slide. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, here's even a stronger word, um, doulos, or slaves. So servants, slaves. In other words, in their world, that's not status. That doesn't make you famous. That doesn't make you important. But Jesus Christ is the one we preach, not ourselves. No, I've seen a lot of interesting comments on that. I found one from 1933 from A.T. Robertson about the idea of preaching ourselves. Quote, surely as poor and disgusting a topic as a preacher can find. Unquote. Now, some put a positive spin on this, sometimes maybe well-meaning, but it's not right. Some say the missionary is the message. And I have written about that and debated against it because one person doing good things and another one doing good things with a smile in the same arena doesn't tell us which one is a Christian. If good means if someone has a car accident or is found alongside of the road, someone will stop and help them. It's good to do that. But does that prove that whoever did it is the Christian? You're not a Christian unless you're born of God. And we're glad that people do good things. But if we can't understand who defines good, which is God himself, then we don't even know what it looks like to do good. And so perhaps the Dalai Lama is a nice guy. I, don't, I haven't met him. But the fact is, the missionary isn't the message. Jesus Christ is the message. And if we don't preach Christ, then how can we define good? If we don't believe the Bible, how do we know what God said? 
And so that sort of thing, I've had friends that went out to seminary where they were convinced of this, and then the social gospel takes over, and pretty soon it's just good enough to be Christianized rather than converted. The gospel is about the person and work of Christ, not how appealing the preacher might look. Now, from what they said about Paul in 2 Corinthians, they said he was unimpressive. But what is impressive is the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life, the hope of glory, redemption, being part of the family of God. The gospel is about the personal work of Christ. I told you already that Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Creator, the Eternal One, we believe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one God, three persons, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, literally true, predicted in Scripture, the sinless life of Christ, and so on. Now, he's coming again. It's a complex event, but there will be rewards for those that know him as they serve. We can't know exactly what that is. I have a verse on that. And there will be degrees of punishment, but punishment is bad. If you're cast out of the kingdom and in outer darkness and so on, that's bad. We need to know him. We preach Jesus Christ. The greatest danger that faces all preachers, and we can see that in a lot of passages, is pride. We see that throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New. How many illustrations have we seen? Saul, um, various ones, and I'll get to some of those as we go through this. Remember, they said the demons are subject to us. Look at that. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. What about you? Today, doesn't matter how bad you've been. We're not saying that you have to bring something to the table. What we have is death, alienation from God, because we're in Adam. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. To be in Christ, we turn from serving sin, self, the world, whatever desires, living for the devil, even though people don't believe there is a devil. We turn to God through Christ. What we need is forgiveness of sins, to be born of God, to have eternal life. Today, today, turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Trust in him. And... That's eternal. And I thank God that I heard that message even when I was an enemy. One more slide. Each person, we'll get to this more because it's so important. 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. Concerning those who are Christian, there's a lot of things we don't know. When we get to chapter 12, I'll talk about some of the misuse of the idea of gifts 
And there's a lot of things we don't know. But look what it says, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. The word there, kairos, probably in that context means qualitative time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That is, those who know him. Now, frankly, the more realistic we are when you see the idea of disclosing the hidden purposes of the heart, it should put the fear of God into us. Because the default position is how to please others and gain their uh, approval. It takes a mighty work of grace to think, how do I know that my motives can be changed, that I can serve God on his terms and love him? And rather than hiring someone to promote ourselves, again, not a good topic, we should seek to please God. And it's not our business to judge who's doing a better job. That's why these schisms and divisions were absurd in 1 Corinthians. Oh, I think there's a great servant. There's a great one. That one's great. This is an important job. That's an unimportant job. We can't know that. It may shock us that some of the greatest saints are people that we knew, but we didn't think they were so great. And some that we think were the great man of God who's going to do everything really wasn't even serving God. Uh, Dr. Fee says, rather the kinds of judgments that must cease are those they are currently making about Paul and his ministry. He said judgments that reflect their lack of genuine eschatological perspective. It doesn't matter what people say about us here after we die. Hopefully, there's some things that God did through us that blessed a lot of people. But the ultimate one is the Lord who comes, who knows all things. What we know are the terms laid out in the Bible for humbly serving him by his grace and loving one another. Before the appointed time, he points out, when the Lord, the master of the household, will come. And we'll talk about that some more in other sermons. But we see a lot of um, parables about that. So the Lord gives people duties, he leaves, and he comes back. Then he says, well, what are you doing? So we can know ahead of time. So today, we have a special privilege. I'm going to be sure we understand what to do. Today, as you've heard the word of God, I'm going to pray, and then we'll discuss what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Who's invited us to pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that you've given these things to help us learn now so that we know how we can grow and we know how uh, we can be pleasing by being in you and how we can love one another. And we pray that you not cause us to be exalted, but to humbly serve and depend on you. Thank you for what you've done. And today, perhaps by your grace, There are some who are smitten to the heart 
And I pray that even today, some will come and turn to you and come from darkness to light and know you as Lord and Savior. In your holy name we pray, amen.